Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 357th episode of Constructed Criticism. I'm your headmaster host, Mason, joined by my janitor co-host, Abe. Abe, how you doing? I'm doing great. I just forgot my mop. Is that okay? No, it's totally fine. There's no spills right now. You know, Strixhaven, it's new. We have some new cards, no spills on the floor just yet. No broken blue-green cards as far as I can tell. So we're okay, Abe. But maybe later? I'll make sure to bring it tomorrow. Awesome. Okay, well, that's perfect. You know, by that time, we might have some more spills, and we'll have to figure things out. But today, we're going to actually talk about uh, Historic Abe. It was kind of the format du jour the last week, and going into the Pro Tour this weekend, Historic has kind of changed uh, a fair bit since we last saw it in some ways, and, and the same in others, and we'll kind of cover that later. But first, Abe, we're going to talk about Always Improving. Abe, what was your Always Improving moment this week? My Always Improving moment this week was... That after last week's modern episode, mm-hmm. I was like thinking about how there's a lot of these new cards that, and like archetypes I hadn't really checked out much, uh, and I wanted to, and I was actually really excited about a lot of the stuff we talked about in the format. So I just went out and I was just I spent some time jamming. Like literally, I would go to random.org with the like decklist dump up, and then enter in the number and spin it, and then like scroll through. And if there was like something I didn't want to like really didn't want to play, like something just looked like. Oh, a stock deck, but it was built poorly, like mm-hmm. Jund with like some weird sideboard cards that didn't look good. I, I would skip it for something cool like Mono Blue Living In, and I was just like jamming what Modern has to offer in leagues for like I think I must done it for like two days. It was the only thing I did, and it was a lot of fun and really just like helped me get my bearings in the format again. Where like I, I think that uh, I think that I kind of like lost the sense of what the games looked like with so much change happening and being out of it for so long with like the sanctuary Euro stuff. So that, that was, that was a good. Yeah. That sounds like a very time. good one. Can you believe that that was going to be the last magic decklist dump? The one you had <laughs> there have been no more. Since yeah, I then? didn't know. I didn't know when we recorded early that that was actually the end of magic decklist dumps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I pray for their safety and their, their safe return to us because I need them. It's very, very funny much. that they said they're working on it. I don't know what there is to work on. I'm not a programmer or a coder, but I imagine it's a list of text files you post. I don't know. Hopefully it returns as quickly and safely. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with, you know, there's that random downtime that it was like oh. inter- ISP, Moto ISP related. And they like, maybe some server got switched or something. They can't like recall it with their... I don't know, man. I'm not a software engineer. I don't know anything. No, <laughs> so, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes. I mean, there's got to be something, right? Like something. Yeah, maybe happen. Maybe all the people at Strixhaven they like stole all the deck lists so that we don't ruin the format in a week or something. Like I, I don't know. <laughs> it will be interesting because I do think shared deck lists and stuff like. I mean, there's still gonna be other deck lists out there, right? But like, Moto definitely does kind of still affect that sort of thing. I wonder how that like affects the format when you can't look at what everyone's doing it's probably better in some ways, worse than others. So it's kind of yeah. an interesting thing to, to think about. We'll kind of see how that goes for the next couple of weeks. Uh, my always improving moment was preparing for historic. So Ali was actually preparing for the uh, pro tour coming up this weekend. And we needed to play Jund and Ape was a part of this, despite not being able to use his voice because he's on bubble tea Island. But uh, we, we prepared and my always improving moment was really exploring some of the decks in historic that I didn't think were the greatest. And in fact, some of the decks got, like, I wrote a tier list article last week, and some of the decks were left off the tier list, and some were put pretty lowly, but I still spent the time to explore them post that happening to really sort of get a better feel for Alley and sort of how they play, and so we can, when we talk about them, we can have these 
uh, more educated opinions than a lot of assumptions. Because the thing that I thought was happening was, it's like, yeah, we feel like the Elves deck does this, but we don't really know. And it's like, okay, if the Elves deck plays in a way that's like a real deck post-board with like less all-in on Coco, and you bring in like cards that grind like Toski or Vivian or maybe some Elder Gargaroths or some Sky, Sky Sovereigns, depending on what you want to like pivot against, could that be a real deck? And I played it, and it was actually very surprising how effective it was. And then I saw uh, Willie Adel actually tweeted he got number three Mythic playing Elves, seeming to do a similar thing. And so I'm really glad that we kind of got that sort of insight going into things. Now we can kind of have a better prepared. And I did that for a couple of decks, from Elves to Green-White Company to revisiting Goblins uh, for a hot minute, just trying to make sure that sort of stuff blue-white control. So that was my always improving moment this week, was really just kind of getting a better grasp on all these things that I felt like I had a fairly good grasp on, but uh, not a perfect one. Yeah, it's always great to do your due diligence. I, I definitely cause I remember you talking about the elf deck and being like, yeah, I just feel like all we've done all week has been like singing the praise of Jund and that's like great or whatever. But does that really get us anywhere when we all knew Jund is good? Yeah. And I was like, you're right. And had I had the wild cards, I probably would win in the trenches with elves with you two. That deck looks sick. It's really good. It's not like the best deck or anything, but it's, it is a lot better than I thought it was going to be when I was playing it. And it's very impressive how just like quickly getting on the board and getting like one Lord can sometimes mess up everything Sack can kind of do to beat you. Cause you would think that like the elf deck is really bad against mayhem devil and it kind of is, but you kind of flood the board really quickly and they can't really get the devils going to kill your stuff quick enough before you kill them. And like that sort of plays out a bunch. And then people that try to like hate spell you out, you pivot on them. And so it's, it's very interesting how that actually kind of plays out when you do it. Like I, I played the elves deck in the qualifier for the SCG uh, and like four two to fit whatever, and I like just beat a bunch of Jun players along the way, just because like their plan was to eventually claim my thing and devil sack and like ping enough stuff down. But you put like ten bodies on the board pretty consistently, pretty quickly, and that's that's a lot of bodies. Devil pings, but not that much. <laughs> so yeah, we'll we'll get into it when we start talking about the format. But I I definitely have a lot of thoughts about specifically that kind of dynamic yeah. and, and how I discovered it through playing the Jun side mm -hmm. and how I could definitely see it happening on your side. Yeah, yeah, it's just good to because I mean, before you did that, well, before I played at least, I thought there's just no way the elf deck could ever win, right? Like it's paying his claims is just unwinnable. Turns out there's ways, and it's always good to catch on that sort of stuff. Those are always improving moments this week. If you want to support the show, one of the ways you can do so is you go to Patreon.com/slash CCMTG, and one of the benefits of that is you get to ask a Patreon question. This week, we though we actually had uh, two brand new planeswalkers drop right before we recorded this podcast. And so we're going to actually kind of talk about those Planeswalkers from Strixhaven. We're going to do that since that seems to be a pretty exciting thing. And we're kind of been our question for the next episode. So the first one is, I'm going to pick this up here and read it because believe it or not, I don't know them all by heart yet. We have Kasima uh, Enigma Sage, one blue green for a legendary Planeswalker Kasima or Kasmina. I don't know how you say it. Uh, Kasmina. Kasmina. Okay. Kasmina. Yeah. There we go. Uh, Kasmina has a, Static ability of each other Planeswalker you control has the loyalty abilities of Kesmina. Uh, she starts at two loyalty. She has a plus two for scry one. A minus X creating zero, zero green and blue token creature. You put X plus one plus one counters on it equal to the amount you minus. And then minus eight, search your library for an instant or sorcery card that shares a color with this Planeswalker. Exile that card, then shuffle. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost. Uh, and yeah, I... Just probably the most important thing before we get into this is just remember every other planeswalker you control can do everything she can do. So, Abe, what are your first thoughts on Kasmina? Uh, my first thought on Kasmina was actually that 
it was a really good card. Like, usually I see the Planeswalkers, and I'm like, eh, you know, it's like, plus does this, minus defend itself, ultimate does a thing, or like, it doesn't have an ultimate. But there's a lot, especially with how this plays with the War of the Spark Planeswalkers, that's very interesting. I think that, like, just giving Planeswalkers that you control another ability, especially one that, like, boosts its loyal. Like, Scry 1's not very powerful, but plus 2 loyalty on the right Planeswalker really can be. Like, mm-hmm. like plus 2 on Narset, and then minus 2 on Narset is a combo. That's a Splinter Twin situation <laughs> for anyone who follows, follows your Twitter. It, it really uh, is. <laughs> And, like, uh, I don't know, like, maybe if... Uh, it, not in, like, a competitive world, but maybe if my Tybalt can just scry one and then, like, make some things instead of always doing the worst thing possible when I play it on turn two. Like, uh... Yeah, no, I... Like, like that, that becomes a more playable card. And it just opens the door for a lot. And I think that the abilities on... Uh, on Kazmina are very well suited to be generic abilities which is really cool to me too, that like minusing X to get an XX creature is like a pretty fair ability and not very good in the same way that Scry is, but it is one that you will probably use on other Planeswalkers. Like there are times where like, yeah, I just have a bunch of loyalty on this. Like, I, like you play with Gideon Jura and just have like 17 or 18 loyalty on him. You're like, what am I doing with this? But you don't want to like activate it because you're putting him in a path of exile. Happened to me a lot in the Jeskai days. <laughs> and uh being able to just like make a four four super nice yeah I, I mean yeah. I, I agree with my first thing that i thought of was narset as well and just all the war of the sparks planeswalkers the first thing i did was go and look at all the ones that only minus because if they only minus like what happens if i can use them multiple times the idea is they're probably pretty good in subcontext um and i think that kesmina actually works really well with all those cards in a lot of various ways like we talked about narset goes up and then back down over the course of two turns, so I need to, like, keep minusing her. But also, like, the minus to make an XX, like, how many times have you had another Narset in hand, and you just got rid of your old Narset and then played your new one, right? And then, like, you minus or whatever? Well, now you can minus one it to get a 1-1, which isn't very good, but, like, you're already not playing the card for that. You're playing it for your Narset to keep going for a while. So you kind of get some extra value in weird spots where you normally wouldn't. And then if your Planeswalkers ever go really big and you need to tutor, you kind of just get that for free. So for, like, maybe a deck that's a Yorion deck where you're already trying to increase consistency a little bit and you need to put some extra cards in your deck, because Mina seems really powerful. Um, and, like, things in Historic, she worked really well with Kiora, the one from War of the Spark. Kiora comes in with 7 loyalty, and you can plus 2 or to 9, and then you can minus 8. And so, ultimate, go grab any spell that's blue or green. And the question becomes, well, what blue or green spell can you get? And it turns out, in Historic, the ultimatum package is actually kind of good enough. And then you kind of get into this weird situation where you have, like, if you can defend yourself to that point, you can get, like, Liliana, Dreadhorde, General, Vorinclex, Time Walk, and that ult- makes another ultimate if your Kesmina ticked up. So, it kind of has some weirdly, potentially powerful stuff. Maybe not the most game-breaking busted stuff in the world, but it has room to explore and play and... We kind of want our planeswalkers to do that and not be busted. So I, I kind of love this card. It's so cool. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan. I'm excited to see what happens with it. The fact that it is ultimate, like I immediately thought that I was like, oh, it, you can just get ultimatum. I didn't think about Kiora, but I forgot that card just existed. To be honest, it only <laughs> ever shows up in like the arena cubes. <laughs> that that card's like really good with uh, Kesmina in a lot of ways. Like you can minus for your uh, Kiora because she has Kesmina's ability, and then you draw a card. So if you need to put a body in play, you like get to cycle a little bit, and then the kiss. Oh the yeah, that's key- actually 
That's sick. Yeah, and the cure like untaps so you can like get to actually casting your ultimatum. So like it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not like unreasonable. Like there's enough there where like I could spend a couple arena matches seeing if there's something there. Um, Yeah, and I think that the utility on like like you're saying with the Narset is just like making a one one is good enough to like get you an untap and like wrath the board so you don't have to worry about your planeswalkers the next turn sometimes, right? Like just chump walkers are Yeah. Chump walkers and planeswalkers are are peanut butter and jelly. It's just it's just good. Yeah, buys a lot of time. <laughs> Buy a yeah. lot of time. That's for sure. Uh, let's move on to Professor Onx. I believe is how you would say that. On- Onyx, I think maybe? It's Onyx. Onyx. Uh, it's Liliana. Bag cat of the bag there. Uh, four black black for legendary planeswalker Liliana. She has Magecraft, uh, which we don't know exactly what it is, but the little description for her static ability kind of tells us what it will do. Whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, each opponent loses two life and you gain two life. Uh, she has five loyalty. Her plus one is lose one life. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one of them in your hand, the rest of the graveyard. Minus three, each opponent sacrifices a creature with the greatest power among creatures they control. And then minus eight, each opponent may discard a card. If they don't, lose three life. Repeat this process six more times. Abe, hey, what are your first thoughts on Liliana? Uh, I think that Liliana's like an average, maybe it's an above average, like six mana Planeswalker for like a standard format. It like generates some pretty substantial advantage over turns. Like looking at three cards and putting one in your hand is a lot of cards for your planeswalker to plus. Like Teferi Hero of Dominaria would take over games alone with just drawing one extra a turn. Uh, and this one, like looking at three, is is pretty huge. Like Ralzarek looking at two was good enough for like it to be a, a finisher for like the Is It decks back in Guilds of Ravnica. Mm-hmm. Um, it's minus three is like good and it's ultimate is like one of those cards that just will end the game. So it kind of is reminiscent of the last six mana Liliana we had, except maybe like a little worse at holding the board. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have to be a, like a header at parity for it to, it to really shine. But the magecraft stuff is really, really interesting to me. I don't know if you knew this about the card, but it all, there's already out there an in color infinite you can do where you can just turn that into tendrils your opponent for infinite. For standard or for no, it's not for standard. Oh, it's okay. For like okay, <laughs> it's for like people who want to waste their time on Moto or whatever. Oh, sure, like in sure. Their commander games because it has to do with the card Chain of Smog. What's you Chain, know of, chain smog? of Smog does? You got me. Chief. It is the card. So you know the Chain Cycle. I'm sure everyone here knows the Chain Chainer's Cycle. Edict. No, like Chain <laughs> of Vapor. Uh, there are some other ones. Chain of Plasma, I think, is the red one. Okay. But they're like, you cast them, and then whoever gets targeted like can pay some sort of cost, usually, and then like cast a copy. Okay. So Chain of Smog is a two-mana Mind Rot, but the player who gets Mind Rotted gets the option to cast a copy. Right? Okay. And that's just the only condition. Is there's no cost to be paid. So you could just Chain of Smog yourself. Infinitely. <laughs> and then just choose to continue Chain of Smogging yourself, and then you're just copying uh, infinite uh, sorceries. That's and funny. then you just tendril them for all of it. It's great. And I, I'm really interested to see what the rest of these Magecraft cards are, because they're all, like, just super prowess. There's going to be some busted cards for sure, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, there's I, no way that's healthy. You just can't put them on cheap things. I mean, Liliana's static is just Tendrils of Agony, right? Like, that's just yeah. what the card is. And so it has to be on expensive stuff. So, like, any effect on any cheap creature is potentially really dangerous, even if it's something that seems innocuous. Like, we've seen this with Storm every time, right? And so it's like a Storm-adjacent mechanic. It's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, play with fire. 
Hope we don't get burned. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Yeah, I, I think this card's really cool. Um, It kind of reminds me of, like, if Obnixilus was a little supercharged in some ways. Because I think the difference in, like, plus one, lose a life, look at your top three and get the best and draw a card is pretty huge. And in Standard, we already have cards like Glimpse of Freedom and Cling to Dust that are pretty good. And, like, maybe a blue-black control deck would want to play. And Liliana, while she doesn't let you, like, dirtle around and do nothing for free for free... She does kind of incentivize you to cast a lot of cards that replace themselves, you know, with her Magecraft ability. So I could definitely see maybe some sort of standard control deck that plays one to two Cling to Dust, maybe a Glimpse of Freedom if it's like a Yorion-type deck. And then now your Liliana Pluses are like fueling another card draw where you draw two cards, right? Because you put your Cling in the graveyard and you put your Counterspell in hand, and now you've drawn both of them. And I think that sort of thing is really powerful. And there are some cards that are really hard to answer in standard that Liliana could now potentially open up with the minus to actually beat, like... If you Wrath plus minus, you can now beat a Toski, and before you couldn't in those colors. So it's got some potential. I don't think it's busted, but it seems to be like an okay-ish card. Maybe not anything that's going to, you know, no Elspeth Sun's champion here, basically, is what I'm saying. Which I've seen yeah. some people compare it to, which is a little crazy. <laughs> that's that's a little much for me. I don't think those people have played with or against Elspeth Sun's champion in a long time, if they think this card is, is like that. Yeah. But... I also didn't, I didn't really think about the like whole, like, you just put a bunch of escape cards in your deck, and then you're now fueling escape and drawing the escape cards. But turning Cling to Dust into, like, potentially, like, a gain five. It's pretty big on, game. like, exiling a creature is, like, pretty huge. If you can, like, just untap with it and a bunch of mana, that's that's definitely going to be... Uh, I, I, would, I would put some money down on that being a, a dynamic that we saw as a player in, in Standard, as people playing Cling to Dust and Liliana as, like the the late game like now i'm really gonna crush you with my card advantage engine yeah yeah it's very interesting i'm curious to see how it all plays out it's just probably a little bit too much to be like the pivot walker from a deck you know like how a lot of decks will try to pivot in to have something because i would like to use woe strider or something more proactive with her but uh we'll have to see maybe it turns out that you can just play those cards anyways uh if you have enough graveyard feeling it might, it might be a thing in strixhaven you know it might be like we want to put cards in the graveyard. We don't really know yet. We'll find out on Thursday. So uh, yeah. it's exciting. Uh, Who knows? It's going to be great. Yep. Well, before we go, Abe, which Planeswalker do you like more? Kasmina or Liliana? I like Kasmina, and I hate that I do. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think she, her static ability, I think, creates a lot more cool situations. And I'm sure, I'm sure I'll play more with Liliana than Kasmina, but I like Kasmina more. So... <laughs> So it's an interesting time for sure. Well, that's our Patreon question for this week. If you want to support the show in other ways, you can go to OasisGames.com and use code CCMTG at checkout to get 15% off your first order and use code WouldThatBeGood to get 4% off every order. That's WouldThatBeGood, all one word. Uh, another way to support us is to go to GreyVikingGames.com and you can go there and you can buy arena sleeves and arena packs and stuff like that. Uh, I'm betting it's actually going to be pretty good value to go there when the new set drops and you get those new pack codes because I bet stores sell them to Grey Viking Games for cheap and then they sell them for cheap to flip it. And now you're maybe getting your collection on Santa, on uh, Arena a little cheaper. So go there and use code CCMTG and you get 10% off. And hey, maybe you can pick up some more packs that way. Maybe there'll be some sealed tokens. I know those are in packs sometimes. So pretty exciting stuff there. So GreyVikingGames.com and use code CCMTG at checkout. Abe. Let's get down to brass taxes here. Historic. We've been talking about it a little bit at the beginning of the show. We've been working on it a bunch this week. It was the format du jour last weekend. And 
I don't know how we start this without talking about how Jund is Jund and the Rakdos engine is kind of the deck du jour. It's the thing to be doing and the thing to beat. What happened? Because when we last left, you know, obviously Uro and Sultai were part of the format, but there were other things. What what changed so much? How did we get here, Abe? Uh, that's kind of a good question, but I think what we really saw over the course of the week was that at the beginning everyone was playing the like collective company, uh, like Jun deck, which was kind of just like the Rakdos deck with collective companies. To just get, like, it's, like, supposed to get, like, one up on the red-black deck, right? And then, and it, and it eats the red-black deck alive. And then, like, people were like, okay, well, the thing is that you're still playing a bunch of the bad cards in the red-black deck because playing a bunch of, like, priests isn't that great and these Dreadhorde Butchers aren't great and they're, like, not even that great in a lot of the other matchups. So, like... What if we just cut them to have like to Corvold more often because that card was so powerful and it's just turning this arms race. Yeah, but now we're seeing the Jun Food deck kind of be the the top dog where they're playing Trail of Crumbs and going as far as to playing uh, some number of Binding of the Old Gods in their main deck to answer the other Corvolds and answer the hate cards and <laughs> funny enough sometimes combo with Mayhem Devil for a little Splinter Twin action, a little pop everything down. Uh, Abe's face makes me feel like he's never gotten uh, destroyed I've in the never, mirror. <laughs> I've never seen that. And also on the turn it pops, you have Death Touch. It also will trigger... The way it works is uh, the pop will happen after the effect resolves, so you get one for free. Oh, you just get the ping one off because of the sack. Yeah, yeah that's an evasion right there. Yeah, Hats off to whoever, whoever found that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But uh, that is kind of the Jundek du jour and... We've seen, like you said, this arm race happen over the weekend, and talking about Historic really becomes like, okay, we have to talk about Jun. What is Jun? Why is it so strong? And because it's just the, the best deck, you have to base everything off that sort of decision. Because we're also seeing players aren't disagreeing for the most part, you know? And basically, every SCG satellite and the main one, Jun was about 30% of the format, give or take a couple percent. So it is the deck you have to beat to get playing. And Abe, what is the strength of this Jun deck, you know, specifically the Jun Food deck, which is a little bigger in the mirror? Uh, wh why are we playing this deck? Why is this the boogeyman? Uh, I think... I think to really understand why Jun Food is so good, it helps to understand, like, what else is going on in the format. And really what's going on in the format without Uro is that there is not a, like a good enough mid-range deck or a good enough, like, deck of answers to hold everything down or try to, like, put a blanket on everything consistently, even with, like, what was it, the next plus, the next most played deck in the satellites, at least early on Friday, was, like, blue-white control because mm -hmm. it had, like, rest in peace and authority of the consoles to, like, shut off just the inevitability and, like, bleeding effect of, like, Cat Oven and it had rest in peace. It just has so much hate natively for like the sack deck and it was just getting rolled by like every collected company deck and every sack deck yeah and then like the other collected company decks just kind of lose to to a lot of the like claim the firstborn like sack outlet draws that uh the jun deck has so it's like jun actually is just covering the only two polarized like axes of attack and it's also just doing some of the most powerful stuff so it's just it's like impossible to to be better than without trying without like losing something everywhere else, right? Like you can't just be uh, 
you can't do anything about it. Like you, you can't, you, you can't play. There's not many answers for Corvold. There's not many answers for like Cat Oven. And if you play a bunch of Rest in Pieces or whatever, now you're not playing Collected Company, so you're not beating like a, a, a fair deck because yeah. your creature deck. Like if you're a creature deck, because you can't dilute your deck that much. And there's just a bunch of things that tax the best cards that are really deck building intensive, like Collected Company. Uh, and then there's just so many format pressures that make it so that you can't beat Jund and anything else. Yeah. It, it, that's, that's how it feels. Yeah, that's how it plays out. I think one of the big innovations and the reason Food kind of came out on top is if your end game is only Collected Company, we you actually can get hated out enough of the time that it becomes a problem. Like, they draw their Grafticker's Cage, you don't get your Braids, they lock out your cat and your Collected Company long enough that they're able to pull ahead and beat you. But when your deck has Corvald as the other end game, it's such a polar opposite plan to the other things you're doing. You know, while the Cat Oven works with Corvald, it doesn't get affected by the same cards in any way, really. In fact, your Sharn doesn't even stop Corvald's sacrifice ability. So you still get to do that sort of stuff and you still get to churn. And this allows you to play like a real game against these decks, right? Because now it's like, okay, you can't lock me out. You have to play against me and you have to beat these two different plans. And so you see stuff like, I'm going to bring in Grafdigger's Cage and Disdainful Stroke. And it's like, whoa, like, you get caught with the wrong card, you're going to fall way far behind and lose. And we saw these other decks like Blue White try to be like, I'm going to build this house of cards where I have, like, two Authority of the Council, so now I'm not taking any damage against Cat, and I'm going to try and counterspell these Corvalds, and you just can't quite do it all right now, and still have a way to win the game. You know, if your deck was only answers, maybe, but eventually they kind of bleed you out with some miscellaneous creature so Jun kind of taxes everyone in such a weird way while also being super efficient and somehow you know even though we're talking about playing trail of crumbs which allows you to go super long and grind people out and having Corval, which is a five mana card the cat oven combination with mayhem devil does enough damage that you can really aggro people down and if they're trying to play these longer grindier games with you your woe strider draws are pretty good because you just kind of trade cards off and woe strider comes back and becomes this recursive threat that's really hard to beat and so Jun kind of puts people in these impossible to win positions. Um, do you think, I guess we should, before we kind of move on from anywhere, do you think the Jun food decks can go another level deeper into trying to beat each other? Or do you think we're kind of hit like a, a plateau point for the moment? I think it probably caps out around Citadel. Like, I don't think you can do anything more like goldfish busted than like trying to power out of Citadel. But I think that's probably too vulnerable. I think you're probably going too in on, like, trumping the mirror with the most powerful thing out the gate that you can find. Mm -hmm. um, because you'll have to go back to playing, like, a bunch of cards that are not too great in, like, a lot of matchups. Like, yeah. Priest of the Forgotten Gods is very situational. And, like, blood, you have to play blood that's probably a card you want. That. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to need to play some number of, like... It, you're gonna need to play some number of bad cards to enable that. I saw some people playing them in the sideboard, playing citadels in the sideboard to like board in even bigger than the Corvolds. But right now, you're probably best like maybe like putting a couple more sideboard cards into your deck for answering the things that go on in the in the mirror matches. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think that the like Jun doesn't need to go that much further over the top to like be winning on power level. The thing is that Jund can just be a slider and go anywhere from like, oh, you, you started to punish that I'm playing a bunch of Corvolds now? Like, oh, you're going to like 
plan to like Aethergust me and like slow me down because my deck's a little clunkier now that I have Trail of Crumbs and such, I'll just go back to Cocoing you. And then when you like plan on punishing the turn, I tap out on five. Uh, like I'll just Coco and untap and then kill you. Yeah. So it's like they, they just have so much range. Yeah. So we, we kind of established, and I think we both agree that like Jund has hit sort of a natural like this is as big as we're gonna go. We've kind of established what Jund is in the format and how it is. And we should probably talk about some of the decks that are trying to attack Jund and that sort of thing. And I think the one that uh, a lot of people have turned to and has had a good amount of success is the Green-White and Bant Angels decks. And Abe, do you want to talk about those real quick? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're run-of-the-mill, like, collected company for good rate creatures decks with, like, some amount of synergy. Uh, like Resplendent. Archangel, as that was called, Resplendent Angel, Resplendent I believe. Angel, yeah, yeah. and it's like the two. Yeah, those those two do a lot of work together. Like you're you're kind of playing some mediums, like you're playing like Soul Wardens. Those aren't like the most impressive cards, but they do a job. And like Bishop of Wings is like good exactly with like some of this combo draw. Um, but you really just win a lot of your games by putting a ton of power in the air and not being raceable because you gain all this life from your uh, your Righteous Valkyries and then they pump your team and then all these like incidental creatures or like random little flyers that were like, you know, I guess like two fours or whatever. Kind of like Spirits did in Modern where it'd be like, okay, here's two Skull Captains. Now you can't answer anything. You can't attack. And I'm flying over you is exactly their game plan. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good way to look at it. And then post board they have your Sharn to really kind of push things home. I yeah. found this the Angels deck to be kind of good versus the Jun draw sometimes, but other times they're just too removal heavy and claim the firstborn is just too punishing of a card. That I, I feel like while I like the idea of this Angels deck and it makes a lot of sense in theory versus these Jun decks and what you're trying to do, I feel like it just doesn't play out like that. And so I kind of want to try and move towards a different your Sharn package. Would you agree with that statement, or do you feel like the Angel deck is maybe not giving enough credit there? Uh, I think that, like, Angels probably has a bit of an opening as the Jun deck moves away from Coco, because I found that when I was playing the Jun side of the matchup, I was just always trying to, like, sculpt these positions where, by, like, their Coco turn, I would be able to, like, get the board cleared with a Mayhem Devil on, like, the small things and a Priest of the Forgotten Gods or, like, a Claim and a Sack Outlet for, like, the most problematic one. And then in the post-war game, especially, like, because I'm playing for Noxious Grasp, be able to just Noxious Grasp the most problematic one and then slowly whittle the rest away with my with my Sack Triggers. But the more that that slows down and the more that they shift away from doing that, maybe it's it's, like, getting a little better. But the problem is that your deck isn't so consistent and like Skyclave Apparition doesn't beat Corvold, which like Skyclave Apparition beating Mayhem Devil and Oven. Uh, and Oven Willow. was like, yeah, it was just pretty huge. The fact that you would, you'd get a huge tempo swing out of that against the, the Coco builds. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a lot going on that isn't going on now. Yeah. So, so it's like, you're, you're going to run into the fact that Jun is just consistently good and will have the draws that, like, peak against your, like, middle-of-the-road draws, and your, like, peak draws will lose to their peak draws against you. Yeah. So you're, like... I think it's still playable, but it's not... It's not the answer. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like that's, <laughs> like... 
Like if I was going to hand you the blade to beat Jund, I don't think the Angels is the deck I'm going to tell you to play. Uh, a deck that I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on, I don't think you've played too much with this, but uh, I've played a fair bit with it now, and I believe it's a lot better version of the food version than was the Jund version, and that's the Slesnia Company decks that are playing these fair game plans. And so basically they're called like the, the taxes decks of the format, even though they don't quite tax enough. But they do things like Lovestruck Beast, uh, Elephant. They play Fairgrounds Warden along with Skyclave Apparition as to really tax the opponent's creatures. Play um, Luminarch Aspirant, those sort of cards. And they have main deck Yasharns. Uh, and that's kind of their game plan. Is they're going to deploy these fair game stuff. They're going to lock you out with Yasharn if you're the sacrifice deck, which can be somewhat of a problem where they're going to overpower you with the Great Henge. And they kind of consistently do that sort of thing. And I think that deck actually has a real shot of uh, being able to beat up on the Jun deck. We saw it do pretty well this past weekend with the top uh, eight from some player whose name I forgot in the moment. I'm so sorry. Uh, but we've seen that deck sort of perform. And I think it has a real shot of being a, a player in the format. It also like main deck scavenging ooze in the deck. And just gets to do all these sort of things and really hate on the Jun deck. My only real problem with it actually is twofold. It's one that your cards are kind of fairish on average. Like, things like the Great Hinge and Lovestruck Beast are really strong, but, you know, not super stellar all the time. And the other is, the other decks in the format, it seems like their plan to beat Jund is to go over the top of Jund, and then you just get dunked on as well, because you're kind of battling, you know, tooth and nail with the Jund deck. So what do you think about this sort of green-white company deck? Yeah, I pulled it up. It looks like it bubbled out of top 12. It was, like, 13th place, and oh, someone playing... Bad. Someone playing a different green-white deck that was a little more, like, I guess, leaning into Collector Company with, like, Sigrid, and was also a Toski deck. Oh, like, okay. Tooth Raven Inspector. This is just, a, like, a green-white value pile made, uh... But for Archon of Marriott, made, made the top eight. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when it comes to beating Sack, this is, this is definitely a way you can go about it. I think that just putting... Taking a deck that has a good enough proactive plan, like your Sharn's not terrible on rate, you're paying 4 4 4 4, and you're going to hit your land drops, which is good when you have like Henge and uh, like mana sink creatures like Scoos. Um, you're just going to want a bunch, of, a bunch of lands. It's like not the worst card to top your curve of like ideally like Land or Elf, like Heart's Desire. To drop into, like, you know, mm -hmm. just just hitting your curve. But I think that, like, like I was saying about Jund, is that if you're gonna slant yourself so hard to beat Jund, you're gonna slant yourself away from being able to beat a bunch of the other decks. Like, the fact we still have to have like rest in peace in our sideboard, and like we and like the four baffling ends. It, it's just like. What are we like? We have so many cards I want to take out against a control deck. Like, I don't really want a lot of Yasharns. I don't want a lot of Fairgrounds Warden. Probably don't want so many Skyclave Apparitions all the time. Mm -hmm. And then, like, what what are we gaining? Because we have to be this lean two color deck yeah. to be able to, like, support casting Yasharn on four and play, justify playing four of them. So it's like, it really shows kind of how, like, where the format is mm -hmm. uh, in, in regards to having to, like, build their plans around playing the powerful answers to Jund rather than like trying to do something powerful and incorporate them like afterwards. Yeah. Like sure. this definitely feels like a deck that starts at the premise of I'm going to play for you, Sharn. What else can I do? <laughs> like, 
No, that's fair. I think but, that's a fair assumption, yeah. But I think it's like playing enough good cards that, and like none of them are particularly agreed, it's just not very cohesive, it's not very synergistic. It's like power really comes from like having the Great Henge and Collecting Company. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, it's not bad. It's just not as good or as powerful as any of the synergistic decks are. Like, I think this is probably a dog to angels heads up because none of your creatures have flying. And I guess you have three fairy rounds warden where they only have Skyclave apparition, but like, they're just going to overwhelm you and they don't really care about your ground creatures at a, at a certain point. They just race you with all their life gain and stuff. So when you, when you look at how it stacks up against the rest of the format, you're, you're definitely behind. Yeah. I, I think that really is the, the, the biggest flaw of the green white deck is because I think you are actually so good against Jund. The reason you're so good is you like play the fair game plan better than they do. And you have enough answers for the unfair stuff. Right. And so what happens is, is you're like kind of this standardy mid range deck almost. that's a little stronger and then you play the rest of Historic, and people are, like, going around you with Elves, or over you with Angels, or, like, Soren pumping things out, or, like, playing some weird combo deck that goes over the top, right? Like, Ultimatum. And you just can't beat those decks. Like, I've played against Angels a bunch, and, like, my best draws as the green white deck barely keep up, and that involves me having, like, a Lanor Elf, and a bunch of Answers, and a Coco in the Answers, and it's just so hard to actually beat that sort of deck. That I think if I think if you're if you if you only want to not lose to Jund and you're okay losing everything else, I love the green white deck, but I can't really recommend it for anything else. It just gets so overpowered so easily. Um, we, we kind of talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the show, and now what do you think about elves in the format? I mean, that's a deck that uh, I kind of mentioned how it actually is surprisingly good against Jund. Um, just kind of this goes so wide so quickly. What are your thoughts on elves in the format? Uh. Yeah, one of the things I noticed of playing a lot of Jund was that, like, the other Collector Company decks were not actually very trivial all of the time. Like, I would, like, the games where I drew Mayhem Devil Claim and, like, a Sack Outlet, lights out. Easy, right? But uh, a deck that goes as wide as that Elf deck does, because it effectively has, like, eight Dwidewinds Elites because of, um... Beastmaster. Yeah, Elvish Beastmaster. Mm -hmm. Uh where it just gets to go really wide and play a bunch of lords, is, like, good enough. Like, you chump block on the ground pretty well with, um, like, random goat tokens and uh, and Cauldron Familiar, but being able to put as much power in play as fast as they do, like, if you don't answer an Elvishard, you're going to die. And if you don't... If you do answer an Elvishard Druid, sometimes they just follow it up with, like, Coco Double Clan Caller jam <laughs> and then you're like oh wow that's like that's like 16 power you got going on there that's pretty impressive my man is pretty bad too so like i'm already at 18 from shocking maybe less from a hit like maybe I'm already like 13 i'm gonna have to block with my two drop or my three drop that i don't want to or i just played trail of crumbs and now i'm dead yeah it is something that i think happens more than people think would happen and definitely more than i thought would happen is that like being consistently linearly putting a bunch of pressure in play is is a way to beat Jun because not every Jun draw is going to be able to keep up with that, especially as they move away from like butcher and uh, priest. Yeah, like the moving away from those cards is surprisingly important because you would often like the priest draws. You would have that plus devil, and you would ping off the various elves that kind of suck, and that would make you force to sacrifice a good elf, and because you sacrifice a good elf, you kill like another sucky elf. And so, like, you kind of three for three or whatever, you know? Like, you kind of traded enough pieces, and that was enough to stabilize them because their cards, you know, they don't overpower your Jun cards. They go around your Jun cards. So I think that's definitely true. I think another thing that kind of gets 
forgotten about, and maybe if you're listening, it doesn't quite make sense how they're overpowering you so quickly, is that Castle Garenbrig is actually like a pretty huge part of this deck. All of the elves except Beastmaster that really pump your team in big chunks, like Allosaurus Rider and Clan Caller, all require like six mana to activate their ability to pump your team, and Beastmaster requires seven. So Castle Garenbrig still kind of gets you there, you know, a turn early in that way. And I have won a lot of games by just putting some elves in play and holding an Allosaurus Shepherd and a uh, Garenbrig in my hand. And on one turn, I play it, activate it, plus five, plus five my team, and just shove. And that is really powerful. And those sort of draws happen a lot because you just have so many things that reward you for drawing Castle Garenbrig that your deck just sometimes randomly spaghettis people. And the elves deck is obviously very good at generating extra mana. So sometimes, you know, you don't attack with one less creature, but it's okay. Everyone got, you know, additional plus one, plus one, or plus five, plus five. So... I think the Elf deck is really good, surprisingly, against the Gen deck, just because of how wide it goes, and it goes underneath other decks as well, right? Like, the problem we talked about with the Selesnia deck is everyone goes over the top of you, but this Elf deck we just talked about, its game plan actually kind of works against these other decks, you know? Like, you get bigger than the Angel creatures do, so you actually have to race them. Now, maybe they gain enough life for that doesn't matter, but it can be hard sometimes. You have a little bit of a real game plan there. And then, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show... The Elf's deck has like a real sideboard. And what happens is, is they will cut the cards that you are going to become weak to. Like if your opponent's deck has a lot of wrath effects, you will cut cards that make you really reliant on the board as much as you can. And you bring in things like Vivian Reed. And then now you can outdraw your opponent. Or you bring in Toski so that like your creatures are moving through them. And if you think they're going to bring Cage and stuff like that, you can bring in like Carnage Tyrant against the control decks, for example. And like that sort of thing allows you to juke your deck and play, like, a green ball, and I think that's actually really powerful. So I think Elves is actually, like, one of the more real players in the format. Yeah, when you showed me that deck at first, one of the things I thought was most interesting, because I was like, oh, like, it looks pretty well built. Like, I don't know about some of these choices, but it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, the the premise of playing all these, like... You can say you didn't like Kogla. That's cool. I get it. You hate Kogla. Yeah, I cut Kogla. <laughs> I cut Kogla for scavenging news, by the it's way. Just, yeah. Yeah, that seems a lot better. But <laughs> yeah. I was like, what's really cool about this deck in concept is that it's very close to being able to just put some Yasharns in its sideboard yeah. <laughs> and rest in peace in its sideboard because those cards are very splashable. And like our mana's pretty good, right? Like we've yeah. got four Despair Sentinel. We could be playing some Pathways, some Temple Gardens, a little Sun Petal Grove for the fans. Yeah. And, and that would be wild. We could just have it locked up. Uh, and, and I think in the same way you could do it with like a black splash, making your mana a little bit worse because Pathway is not that good in the deck. Mm-hmm. And like you're probably cocoing a little less, but you have this, you're doing something similar to Sacrifice, which is have a good, strong out the gate plan A backed up by Collected Company and then being able to shift around like through the hate. Mm-hmm. And of all the decks that we had looked at and that we have, we had like played with or against. That is definitely one of the better ones that, that we looked at over the week, for sure. Because I think that it's just, it's assessing what is a powerful thing to do in the format and like starting on turn one, do, setting up to kill you on turn four is a strong thing to do in Historic because not every deck gets to do that. 100%. Speaking of something that starts off the gate strong and ends quickly, let's talk about Blue Eye Control. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, they lose really quickly, so it ends very quickly. <laughs> or it takes forever to grind you out of the game. One of the two. The only two options. No, but what do you think about the Blue-White Control deck? Like we mentioned, it's kind of fallen out of favor. I think we should probably mention why, because that deck is trying to fight Jun 2, and 
and I think, you know, the blue-white control deck to kind of posit why you might want to play it, though everything we've talked about so far is a board-centric deck, right? Every single deck we mentioned plays to the board. So this deck plays Wrath of God, Doomscar, no creatures. So the opponent's answers don't work against you, and you have a bunch of answers for their stuff. But why is it that we don't really like the blue-white control deck? I'm going to let you talk about what you feel about the blue-white control deck so that I can freely rant about what I hate about the way that blue-white control decks are built that I, I feel like has been... It's kind of been cropping up a bit okay. over the last few episodes where you like say something about Dovin's Veto and I say I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, sure, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll just say this. Yeah. I think I think the biggest strength of blue-white is what I mentioned. Uh, the format is a board-centric format and blue-white control uh, attempts to answer that with these powerful cards like Wrath of God and Doomscar to a lesser extent and have these catch-alls that kind of catch a lot of the decks in the format. The problem is sometimes that's not enough. It's not quick enough. It's a reactive answer in a proactive format. Uh, and also another problem is that the, the deck can only really win off to Fairy. We've seen some adoption of Dream Trawler, but that kind of plays into the Wrath of Gods and then plays into their kill spells that you're trying to rot in their hand. And I just think that is the strength, but also it's just not a good enough strength to play Blue-White. And so I think Blue-White is kind of has the classic fundamentally flawed problem of having rigid answers that you have to line up correctly against your opponent's stuff and then figure out a way to win the game. The format's just too diverse and too malleable at being able to beat it, especially from like the Jun standpoint, which is supposed to be your best matchup, and they just pivot around you with Thought Season Rex Ages and then deploy their threats in such a way that you have to answer them, and then they follow up with a Corvald, and then that refuels them, and then you die. So, yeah. what do you think? That's, that is exactly how it goes. <laughs> and I think that... So I think that, like, blue-white control, if you're, like, laddering, or even even if you're just playing, like, some SUDs, it's not ever going to be that bad, because it, it is a... Uh, it does put a hold on the format and keeps people honest with rats, which is very good. I think Teferi 5 is a very good card. I think that, like, if you are able to just have your game plan play out and you sequence well, and you, like, are able to evaluate the threats well enough and play perfectly, you'll, like, win a bunch of matches. Uh... Probably would have won more matches if you're that good, playing a better deck, but go off. Uh, but the thing that really bothers me about the way that people build blue-white control decks in the modern era is that they just, like, try to, like, solve all their problems with more unplayable cards in their deck that literally needs to be trading one for one with the important ones. So then it draws the good cards at a way, way, like, less regular clip. Like... They put a bunch of authority consoles in their deck, which would have probably just been better as opts so that they can win the games they win with the Wrath of God. So that they can hit their, like, they can hit all of their untapped lands and kill something, or would have been better as, like, just another counter spell that would have answered the follow up thing. Like, I saw it coming. If you spend your turn two putting that for cold and then are able to, like, Wrath plus saw it coming on six, you don't get core volted, you're winning way more games than you're winning by, like, just playing authority and the fact that you're even playing authority says a ton about just how bad your deck's positioning is because this is not a playable magic card and i think that oftentimes especially like straight up blue eye control players i see it way more than any other deck they like to just put unplayable solutions to like problems their deck has in their deck and then act like everything's fine now and like we had in the, we played this game in testing that Mason's been like laughing about all week <laughs> where like I was playing on my laptop because I wasn't home and I'm like trying to play on my trackpad playing uh Junsack. I've got a lot of triggers to click through. I'm almost timing out, but I'm just browning him on turn 30 of a game where he just went, yeah, I've got 
authority of the consoles, authority of consoles, rest in peace. And I was like, yeah, I'll just kill you. It doesn't matter. We'll play this game for, for however long it takes. I'm so far ahead. And that is exactly how it played out. I beat him because he like couldn't find a wrath because maybe his deck didn't have the tools and the right cards and had overprepared this bad plan. I, I so, yeah. need two life Stop every doing that with your decks, man. Uh, yeah, and then I dealt you like seven damage for every creature. It I was played. like an opt. I bought me a turn. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> ops is two cards. You only see one card every draw step, Mason. Oh, I always top my ops. They're just they just think twice for a mana. You should be playing hieroglyphic eliminations. Because <laughs> that that's the solution. It's um... divination when you need two. It's uh, it's opt when you need one. Well, okay. That, uh, That's kind of my rant. Just just play good cards in your deck, man. Think about your... Don't make your deck so unplayable to try to beat one thing and then be like, my Wraths will cover everything else. Because that'll work on ladder in an untuned format. And we saw that. Like, Blue-White was considered one of the better decks coming in because it does play, like, a bunch of things. They'll just lights out people who overextend or, like, don't respect you or don't know that you're playing Blue-White because it's not open deck list on the ladder or whatever, you know? Like, there's a bunch of reasons that Blue White will win, and it's not bad, like, to the extent that you shouldn't register it, but it's not good, and it's and when you put a bunch of bad cards in your deck, you're not making it better, is how I feel about it. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think, I can't remember if we talked about this on the show, or when we were talking with Allie, but one of the things that I was really curious about going into this week was, okay, there are all these decks that people say are good in Historic right now. Um, like the Angel deck, for example, was one I was kind of a doubter on. And it was like, is Angels good or is Angels good in a format where there is no pressure? And what we found is, you know, we, we put Historic through the, a little small version of the pressure cooker. We're going to do it again this weekend for the Pro Tour. And it turns out Angels survives at least the first limit test, but Blue-White does not. Blue-White just did not perform this weekend in any measurable way. And despite people trying. Um, and it, sometimes a format just does not handle people actually trying to, like, come up with plans to beat you and like really thinking about it. And I think that's the problem with blue white right now. Speaking of a deck trying to come up with plans to beat you, it was one of these decks we haven't really talked about that I've been pretty high on in the past, but I, we haven't really seen too much is gruel. Uh, Abe, what do you think about the gruel deck? It has Llanowar elves and burning tree emissary and ember cleave and these good efficient creatures. Why are we not seeing more gruel? I don't know. I think gruel is always gruel to me has always felt like a deck that people just don't, like to play, or like maybe they like to play, they just don't play enough. It kind of like popped up when people were playing Uro, and like I remember, I think it was like, was it Martin Yuza? Yuza had who like played it, sure. yeah, and he played it in the split, and mm -hmm. like did medium or whatever. It was like, it's fine, I like didn't want to play a bunch of Uro matches anyway, and this way better. Uh, but like the Gruel deck, in the same way that Elves gets to get by Sack by like having these draws that go wide and doing something powerful by adjusting to the format by saying, I'm going to kill you on turn, uh, like on turn four and I'm playing collected company. Uh, Gruel does the same thing, but in a less synergistic way, it's more just like, I'm going to play a bunch of good rate individual creatures. So it's going to be difficult for you to beat me with just like one or two well-placed removal spells. You're going to need to answer a lot of things. And I have like, you know, just some really good raw rate stuff. And Embercleave of all my fails. And Embercleave to back up my really good rate stuff. Because yeah. stuff in Embercleave is still good enough uh, to, really to beat people in Magic. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if 
you'd experience that, Mason. I uh, never, I've never been embercleaved, ever. That's nice. Yeah, that's it's nice. a, it's a blessing. It's a real blessing. Uh, yeah, that's a deck that I think the people just don't play a lot. Let me see if it did show up. I, I um, maybe had one. Like, it actually lost. Or, no, he didn't lose the finals. It looks like it lost the finals of the... It's second place in the melee for uh, the PTQ over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the just the stock, like, Ferocidon, Galia Split, and, like, Bonecrusher Giant, Gruel Spellbreaker. Yeah, Three is- collected company, a very sane number, I guess. Fourth collected company in the board, of course. Yeah, um, without, it goes without saying. You have four Ember Cleaves, come on. Yeah, but it, it did show up, and it looked like it performed pretty well. It was a small, like, portion of the field, maybe, like, ten pilots, but uh, I'm seeing, of those, one made the finals, and, or at least, like, made in the top, top 12. Four, like, the thing is kind of weird, is sometimes post in the order they got into top 12, but, uh... Yeah, and the others, the others did, did fine. We've got some, some O2s and, like, medium 3-3s or whatever, some of these builds are not as clean but it looks like the cleaner the build is as i go up the list yeah the the closer to seven two the the money zone that these uh these decks got so i think that it, it it's up there for the same reason the elves is up there that you can uh that you can play other decks than sacrifice and try to get them you just have to be really aggressive and this deck is really aggressive and has its own nut draws like a burning tramissary new voltaic brawler against an unprepared opponent, it, they're just dead. <laughs> they just can't There's a anything. bunch of combinations like that, right? Like, Burning Tree Stomp, your two-drop, that, that's, like, yeah. often an unbeatable... That's, like, a Flamethone Kabu type thing, right? Like, those sort of plays get you really far ahead. And, like, Elf and the Girl Spellbreaker attack you is a really strong draw on the play. I, one of the things I'm noticing, and I, I kind of thought about before we're going into this, is that these Lanor Elf decks actually play one of the best cards in the format, in the form of Lanor Elves. And it's not surprising to see those decks really perform. You know, the decks that are cheating on mana with a card that is traditionally very, very strong, it is not surprising to see those be the other decks that compete with the very, very strong decks. Uh, I think this deck should be explored more, because I think things like Rampaging Frostodon are clean answers to a lot of these things we've talked about. You know, like, if you're racing the Elf deck, your strength becomes your weakness in some draws. You know, especially if they have an Embercleave. And Angels, like, they really need the life gain to race you. Cat Oven really needs the life stabilization and the... That sort of, de- excuse me, that sort of department and the pings from like the cat coming back actually become a problem. So I, I think Gruel has a real shot. I would not su- be surprised to see it do very well this weekend. But I think it's been a, yeah, I think- just like a reflection for us. I think that was a big miss for us looking into this format, despite us thinking we had more days to look at it. But, you know, like I, I think, I think us missing on Gruel was a big, uh, a big mistake. I think, I think, yeah, that I think that strong. we, we might have just fixated a lot on the decks that we knew people were running with right now, but like, not looking back and saying, like, this was a deck people chose to play into Uro as well, and not just, like, the new stuff of people, like, playing this Angels deck or, like, Vampires or, uh, you know, whatever. Might might have been a pretty big spew. I, I definitely think that it's... It might not be the best juke to go from, like, oh, well, like, like into the PT, if I were playing the PT, like, saying that I'm going to play this over Sack would be pretty like, scary, because Sack seems so strong and so hard to, like, shut down beyond, yeah. like, maybe at worst we'll see that this PT is 40% Jund, and then, like, it only has, like, a 45% win rate when you take out the mirrors or whatever because people really came prepared, or even, like, a 40% win rate. But I can't imagine Gruul having, like, 
a better win rate, right? Like, like than than what I would expect the the average like range of what my Jun deck would be. Like, I can't. Yeah. I could also see Jun just being really good and being fifty five because all these people fail to actually be all of its plans. Yeah. The, like, the question well is, and the thing we don't know because we didn't put the time is, is does Gruel actually do what we're thinking it does? Right. We're like. Does it actually consistently punish these draws? Does it have enough things to do that? Does it come out the gate fast enough? Or are we seeing that, like, the benefit of Gruel is you have these draws that are, like, the upper range draws are nigh unbeatable, even from other decks unbeatable draws, right? Like, does Elf, Burning Tree, Gruel Spellbreaker as a draw, you know, plus two lands, is that, like, a beatable draw for most decks? My guess is no, but we don't really know. We haven't really put the time in. It's a lot of theory on that sort of thing. And yeah. I think that would be the kind of the breaking point for Gruel is like the people who really put time and brought Gruel, did they figure out the plans and does it actually do it is the question. Because we we have not seen a lot of Gruel in the satellites either, so it's kinda interesting. Yeah, I also think that Gruel Gruel has these really good draws, like the draws where it has Burning Tree plus like a good two drop and it lines up or like has Land Rails plus three drop. Just like gets to be explosive or really good, but maybe it just doesn't happen consistently enough. Yeah. Um, because like the thing about Sack is that all of its pieces are so good together, like an oven or a strider plus like a cat or a mayhem. Like all of its pieces are kind of two card combos. Yeah. It's yeah. So like, so meshed. And, and good finding like, the pieces too. Open on Untapped Green Source, Lanor Elf, like uh Burning Tree Emissary, and another thing to just be like, that's a win is just too much to ask all the time. But it's definitely a deck that, like, it, I, I'm i not confident to say that it's not a deck that can hold up. Yeah. Because I think that uh, I think that anything that Goldfish is as well as this deck in a format where people can't really just play cheap removal spells all the time because they get run over uh, by, like, the value in Sacrifice is is bad. You can't say that it's bad. Yeah, I agree. One of, one of the things we struggle a lot in the format with Ali about uh, Abe is that I think a defining uh, trait of Historic is the lack of early interaction. And things like Fatal Push and Thoughtseize have been steps in the direction to help fix that. And we've seen decks like Auras fall in favor as those things rise in popularity. But what I've come to the conclusion of, and I kind of posited before on the show, is that Clan the Firstborn is kind of filling that role in some ways. And I believe with how the format is so board-centric, Clan the Firstborn is actually the better, the better Fatal Push at least to the point at which the Jun Food deck became the best. Now, maybe Jun Food being, like, not as creature-heavy changes that, but I think Claim is the best removal spell right now in Historic, and I think that's part of the reason why we see this Jun deck do so well and why it's so hard to stop all these decks. Like, having your creature die to then kill your own creatures again is a really huge punish, and it's also a way to swing combat math, and it's just such a punishing card in the format. It's very surprising. Yeah, it's like a searing... It's it's like unlicensed integration, searing murder or whatever, except it's like somehow even better because you get more and more value. Yeah, more and it's one mana. Value. Yeah, and it it's it's one mana. Everyone's playing a bunch of cheap, like, one to three mana creatures that are good because there's, like, not a ton of interaction that's playable. And, like, it just all... It just all comes together that Claim the Firstborn is so good. Like, there are times where in the standard, Claim the Firstborn is... is almost as good mm -hmm. uh, because people aren't playing like big creatures. I, I know like the Akron war, like red black deck and standard. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very similar in construction. In a lot of ways because being able to capitalize on claim the firstborn is so good, but this just does it in a way that's even better because every other card in the deck is also just better for using another piece of material for a sack outlet. So 
Definitely, definitely. Well, I, I think that's going to kind of wrap us up here on Historic. We've kind of talked about a lot of the big decks kind of going into the weekend. And I, I really do think that if you're thinking about playing Historic and stuff like that, you have to think about why am I not playing Jund? And if I'm not playing Jund, how am I beating it without getting run over by these other decks? Because as we talked about, a lot of the plans to beat the Jund deck is to go over the top of them in whichever way or go quicker than them. So sort of think about that. I hope this sort of helped contextualize the format. Abe, I think I know what you're going to say, but if you had to register a deck for the PT right now, what would you pick? Jund Sacrifice. <laughs> Jund Food or Collected Company? Are, are you a fooder? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. be playing Jund Food. I, I would have spent a lot of last week just working on, like, cyber plans that allow me to play more interaction post-board. Yeah. That would have been, like, my MO. Yeah, I, I think I would play Jund, and if I wasn't allowed to play Jund, I'd play Elves. So, I think that's kind of where I'm at, so... Yeah, but let's kind of talk about Standard really quick here. Let's kind of check in because, you know, we're going to this weekend's SCG is Standard. The Pro Tour is half Standard. Abe, what are you kind of thinking about Standard here before we kind of leave it out on the show? Uh, I think cycling is probably still good. I don't think I've seen a lot of evidence that people have come up with some plan for locking out Sultai. I think that my eyes are, or for locking out cycling, I think that my eyes are going to be on Sultai because I think that with the format just kind of still having the the vague memory of what happened two weeks ago, um, it it has a chance to be adapting still to cover the the new innovations from week to week. I I, I felt that way about Soltai for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. I, there's a couple of things I want to try, probably mostly Soltai related, and then if Soltai continues to be good. And a lot of the like decks that push me off playing White Weenie start to be bad. I'm probably going to go back to playing Mono White. Sure, I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I'm a pretty big believer on uh, cycling being a good deck. Uh, I'm a little hesitant on Soul Tide. Maybe that's still a problem in my game, which we talked about a little while ago. I'm just maybe too down on Soul Tide. We'll, we'll have to figure that out over the course of the week. But I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, and I, I'm kind of a believer in Mono Red a little bit, just because of what we talked about. I believe it to be good against those two decks on average, and so I kind of want to explore that a little bit. We've seen it do okay in the Emoto events. But yeah, that's kind of where we're around standard. It's such a format that hasn't gotten to the spotlight uh, as much as the other things, and we're going to be working on a lot this weekend. So one of the cool things of being a patron of the show we talked about earlier is you get access to the Discord where you get to ask us questions. But another thing we've been doing is we've been, uh, well... Abe's going to do it now because he's back from vacation. But before I was posting my deck, it was funny because it's like, we're going to do this new thing. And then Abe just doesn't do it because Abe's gone on VK. But, uh, you know, like uh, I posted on my deck list. So, like, if you were in the Discord, you actually got a little bit of insight into our Pro Tour testing with Allie where I was posting, like, this is the Jun deck. This is the Elf deck I'm playing. And then every time I play the SCG Satellites or the main event, which I unfortunately didn't get to play this last weekend because my internet was down and Comcast couldn't figure out why. Oh, but sad. yeah, I woke up and it was down and I called them and they're like, your internet's up. I'm like, no, it's not. And then I spent two hours talking to them. Uh, and <laughs> but either way, uh, that's all on the Discord. And so all that stuff's there. And so feel free to ask us questions, talk about that, and feel free to post your own stuff too. We're happy to have conversations and think about things. And even if you're not playing that much, uh, that we don't have much time to play and you want to post what you're thinking about and talking about, we'd love to have that sort of conversation, that sort of stuff. And hopefully you can break it. We can steal your deck list and popularize it. And then we'll thank you in the Patreon as we take all your clout to the moon. So uh, <laughs> you can all do all that at patreon.com slash ccmtg. And we hope to see you there. Yeah, especially with the way that... It's kind of like one of the weirdest things that's come from 
like magic during COVID is that like these SCGs, the metagame just starts on Friday and ends on Sunday. Like, it changes is, every time. It, it's literally like every five or six hours when when a results dump is posted and, and another one has entrance, like all eyes are on it. There's a lot of players in these events. Uh, and, and it's really what matters to players right now. And so like it is the metagame working in real time in front of you. And there's not a real way that we could predict with, with what we talk about on the podcast, what's going to happen or what people will think about doing and what people will do. Uh, but we're, when it comes to those Fridays and Saturdays in the Sunday, we really are just in the trenches working on it. So if you're someone who uh, wants in on that, wants to get a little, little peeksy poo behind the curtain, a little sclusy content, of what's going on, what are we thinking about when it comes to the satellites over the weekend, uh, the, the Patreon Discord is the place for that. So, right. Well, if someone wants to find you to get more hot takes like this and get to see the podcast get promoted, where, where would they go? Uh, they would go to twitter.com slash morenothings, M-O-R-E-N-O-T-H-I-N-G-S. Awesome. If you want to follow me, go to twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. You can also follow me on Twitch at the Mason Clark, and you can find me each and every week on Card Kingdom on Thursday, writing predominantly standard content uh, and stuff along that nature. So you can go there to see some written stuff. Sometimes it plays into what the episode talks about. Sometimes it doesn't. It's pretty exciting. So make sure to do all that. And once again, thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. <laughs>